So it's time to bring on Christian Fowler, senior writer and content creator for Bluff City Media on X at C Fowler BCM. We have a podcast, if you don't know about it yet. Full-length video version on YouTube. It's called the On the Bluff Pod. You can also get the audio version, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. Christian, how goes it? How are you doing? Everything's good, brother. How you doing? I'm doing well. I am doing uh, pretty well. Pretty, pretty good, I gotta say. Um... How are uh, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about this week for the Tigers? Let me let me ask you that first. Um, <laughs> got Mizzou in St. Louis. I'll talk. Yeah, we'll get is. to the Brady Cook injury in a second. But but how how are you feeling? Long week of preparation. Mizzou coming off a win against Kansas State, number fifteen team in the country. Big win for Eli Drinkwitz. Very emotional. I do. You, do you have positive, negative, or indifferent feelings right now? I'm going to say at least everything leading up to the game should feel positive for Memphis. Uh, we talked about this last night, just the fact that Missouri is a team over the last several years with Brady Cook at quarterback, which, like you said, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit deeper here in a minute. And with Eli Drinkwitz as the coach, they haven't won much, mm-hmm. especially in big games. So for them – to knock off a top 15 team at home in the way that it happened down to the wire, 61-yard field goal by Harrison Mevis to win it. So coming off of that emotional high, and now you're playing in St. Louis, you're playing against uh, a team that you're not going to get high as about playing as you are a top 15 team. So you're playing you know, a non-Power 5 team in Memphis, it just feels like it's it's like the perfect trap game type situation for Missouri. Now, could they come out prepared and ready and and have no hangover from it? Of course, but just typically in these situations, especially teams that haven't been there, done that, like we see that in these situations, they're a little bit sloppier. The energy's not as high, so it's a it's certainly a possibility that we could see that. And then on the flip side for Memphis, they came out of the Navy game. Pretty healthy, uh, which is always something that you worry about with the Navy game with how many times that they're going to run the ball. So they come out, out of that game relatively healthy, and not only, not only that, but also they get nine days, they get an extra two days of preparation, which you talked about a couple weeks ago like that. You loved that. You loved having a long week. You felt like you guys always played better having a long week and having more preparation time, which obviously makes sense. So I, I think everything is positive for Memphis leading into the game. And kind of all the all the recipe is there for a potential upset, albeit not a massive upset. They're only a touchdown underdog, so it's not like it's some crazy proposition for them to win the game. Uh, but but nonetheless, I think it's it is a recipe for a little bit of an upset. We'll see how it shakes out on Saturday, but. I think all that should help them going into the game. Now, a lot of people would argue that the close game against Navy does not make them feel good uh, going basically on the road to deal with an SEC opponent. But, like, did you – are you just throwing away the film for for this Memphis team against Navy or are you taking away some negatives having played so damn close with them? I I, I think there's a lot of people in this fan base after the first two games wanted to see the defense tackle better in the first half. They didn't. Now, they figured it out in the second half, and I think there's a good excuse, the fact that they didn't hit at practice because it was a short week. But are you discouraged at all by what you saw against Navy? I would say I would be a little bit – I get the defense stuff. I I mean, I think we all expected the defense to look really good in this game, and in the first half they really didn't. But for me, it's still about this offense and the consistency and the rhythm 
And I just don't – I don't think Navy is a very good team. Uh, we saw Memphis come out first drive, uh, typically scripted stuff, which is what you're supposed to hit on, and they hit all the way down the field. They score a touchdown, but they just couldn't find that consistency there. Their opening scripts, by the way, I hate to cut you off, but their opening scripts for all three games have been – beautiful and then it's just they've gone through a, a few lulls maybe not in the uh bethune cookman game because bethune cookman's not great we did have a couple turnovers from seth hennigan but uh those opening scripts they come out rocking and firing executing really really well and then they go through a few lulls right and you would think that that would set you up for success you know kind of get you into a rhythm early allow you to feel comfortable and confident especially when you're going down the field and putting points on the board, but it just hasn't it hasn't translated yet to consistency for this offense. So for me, that was like the one thing that I wish we would have seen a little bit more of because it felt like after that drive, it was like okay, Memphis is locked in, offense yep. is is clicking, like this is they're going to be unstoppable in this game, and that just it wasn't the case. So that that concerns me a little bit. But other than that, we say this every year: dump dump the Navy film. It's a completely different style of play than you'll see any other time in the season you see it once a year and so to to win against navy is always just a a good check mark to have regardless of how good or bad they may be they offer a unique challenge so to get out there with a win is certainly positive but i do wish we would have seen them pull away a little bit more and a little bit more consistency from the offense now brady cook looks like he has a hyperextended knee eli drinkwitz uh basically has said that uh we're going to see how it works. He's going to be day-to-day. He's going to be a game-time decision. But he looks really good against Kansas State. 356 yards, two TDs. He accounted for one touchdown rushing. Probably the best game I've seen him play in college, quite frankly, against a really formidable team and defense in Kansas State. Um, if Brady Cook's not out there, how much better do you feel about their chances? Because here's the thing. Uh, for those that don't know, I'm going to expose Christian a little bit. He's not a Brady Cook fan. You're not, you're not, a, you're not very high on Brady Cook. No, I'm not. I mean, I'll give credit where it's due. He's played much better this season. Uh, five touchdowns, no picks in three games. So he's played better. But, I mean, you still look back at, like, that MTSU game. They squeak away with a four-point win. Like, he's, he's, been, he's been good this year. He's been much better. But still, to me, he doesn't, he doesn't strike fear into me at all. Uh, if I was an opposing def- defensive coordinator, I don't think I would be, you know, scared about Brady Cook's going to come out here and beat us in yeah. this game. Right. Um, but but with that being said, of course, any time that there's a backup quarterback in, you feel better about your chances just because it's not someone who is consistently on the field. But also, and you can, you can speak to this more than I can, when a quarterback that doesn't have much film on them or, or has not played plays in a game, preparation becomes almost impossible because you just don't really know what's coming. So that right. offers a unique challenge in itself. Um, because with Brady Cook, you know what you're getting. You have plenty of tape on him, plenty of film on him. Uh, but if a backup is in the game, then that, that changes the dynamic of things. So overall, I don't know how much of a difference it makes. Obviously, like I said, you feel better playing against a backup quarterback, but it completely changes you know, uh, the way that this game is going to be called from an offensive perspective. Now, who does strike fear into everybody is Luther Burden. He's been unbelievable this year. Uh, 22 receptions, 327 yards, three TDs in that game against Kansas State. Seven for 114, two TDs. They'll try to get him involved in some of those gadget plays, whether it be end arounds, reverses, the whole nine yards. They may run him a little bit. Who knows? Um, because he is that good. He was the number one wide receiver recruit two years ago, and you know, uh, you look at Eli Drinkwitz and, and that offensive staff, they want to get him involved early, often, and throughout the game. 
What do the Tigers need to do? What does Matt Barnes need to do to try to, you know, either limit what he does or or sort of take him out of the game? What 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 can be done against a guy like Luther Burden? Yeah, I mean, I'll be interested myself to see what he does. Like, if if they shade him with the safety the whole time, like if you see a safety shade the whole time to the side of the field that Luther Burden is on, I wouldn't be surprised. Force him underneath, maybe play eight to ten yards off of him, let him get some of those more intermediate routes, maybe slants and stuff like that, but don't allow him to beat you deep is, is what I would expect. Um, because we've seen in the past with Memphis' defense, they're kind of okay with the dink and dunks, but they try to limit big plays and Luther Burden is that guy for them. So I won't be surprised if a safety's over the top of him. I, I think you need to have two on him at all times. And, uh, and, and, yeah, I guess it can go either way, right? Like, if you want to shade a safety over the top, you can give cushion to your corner, or you can try to press to throw him off his game. So I, I don't know if they'll mix it up or if they feel more comfortable about one uh, style of a corner plan uh, rather than the other. I, I have no idea. So, for me, like, for me personally, it, when it comes to receivers like that, it's it's a – it's tough either way because you can right. get up and press him and it only takes a play or two for him to get off of that press coverage and get open and then, well, that didn't work. Or if you give him cushion and they throw a screen or a slant, he's the kind of player that can take that uh, for a touchdown. So it's it's a very tricky, difficult situation to have a plan for a player as dynamic as Luther Burden. I think a, a good thing for Memphis is they haven't used him out of the backfield as much this year. We saw him kind of play a little bit of a hybrid receiver running back role last year. He hasn't done that as much. He's primarily been a receiver. So I think that helps you a little bit more as far as schematically, you know how they're going to try to use him and attack you with him. It's just, can you come up with the scheme or can, or do you have the guys that can make the plays in that moment to keep him from beating you over the top or beating you with his speed? So it's a, it's not an enviable position or yeah, not an enviable enviable position for uh for Matt Barnes in the defense this week. What else concerns you about this matchup? I'll tell you the one thing that gets me is uh, you know this this Tiger O-line dealing with a SEC front seven. It may not be the best SEC front seven, but they're certainly serviceable. They were good last year when that offense struggled and they've been solid so far this year even though we have a sort of limited sample size. Yeah, completely agree. If Memphis can't get the run game going, it's going to be extremely hard for them to win this game. Um, so if they're not able to block up front, if Missouri's front seven is able able to have their way with Memphis's offensive line, it's going to be it's going to be a tough night. And if that does happen, Seth Hennigan will have to play nearly flawless, if not completely flawless. And we haven't seen that this chance. year, right? We haven't seen that. He, he hasn't he hasn't been perfect. And you can't ever expect perfection, but he, I don't think he's looked as good as most people expected him to. Um, he, he's, he just hasn't really taken that next big step that I think a lot of people expected him to take this year uh, with being an upperclassman and having so much in-game experience. And we're only three games into it, so that, that step could, keep, could right. still come. Uh, it just depends on the way that his offensive line goes, the way that the running game goes, and if he continues to have guys step up, because I think his playmakers have played very well up to this point. You've had big games from Demir Blankumsi, Towski Dove has had his moments, Rock Taylor has had his moments, Blake Watson has been really incredible for this team, so he's got guys around him. It's just can he can he continue to elevate his game throughout the season, and this is a game in particular, the next three games in particular, will be games where they absolutely need the best 
Seth Hennigan on the field to win those games? I have been posed this question. It's tough for me to answer. I sort of got asked, is, is Seth sort of hit the peak of his powers or has he regressed in his three years since being on campus? What, what do you think? Like, Do you lean either way on that? I think you can make an argument that his freshman year was his best year um, at Memphis. But it's 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 not a big drop off. If it, if there has been any kind of regression, it's not been extremely noticeable. I think he's just been very consistent. I think he's been a very similar player over his two years and three games that he's played at the University of Memphis, and I, I think that's what people have kind of been surprised about is when you saw him as a freshman it was like, okay, this guy can be like the next really, really good Memphis quarterback because he was lighting the world on fire his freshman year. I think he – was he a freshman All-American, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah, freshman sure All-American. So it's just like you get a guy this young coming in and having the success that he had early on, the expectation I feel like last year and especially this year was just to take take the next step into being a, an elite quarterback and that, that just hasn't happened yet. And no, it's frustrating. I, I just think like the first few games of his his freshman year, there was a little bit of a run game that he could rely on. He hadn't been able to rely on that at all. And I think we do kindly have finally have a semblance of a weapon though in Blake Watson that can really emerge. What do you think about his performance against Navy? It's hard to hard to not like anything about it. Maybe the fumble on the goal line, but that was sort of an exchange issue between him and Seth. Blake Watson looks like a absolute dude, an absolute dude. Yeah, 100%. I was reading something today, uh, ESPN kind of released their like draft risers and stuff like that. It was mainly centered around quarterbacks, but there was one uh, section where they were talking about lesser-known players who have been making noise, and I think it was it was either Mel Kuyper or Matt Miller uh, that were talking, to, they were talking about Blake Watson saying that they see him being a, a mid-round pick, a three-to-five pick this year, or third-to-fifth-round pick this year, um, which shows you and tells you everything you need to know about Blake Watson and how dynamic he is not only as a runner but as a as a pass catcher as well. I mean, pretty much in every game he, this season, he's made a massive impact as a receiver. So he's a true true dual threat running back. Uh, I think I think already had 37 catches at Old Dominion last year, which broke their like single season re- receptions record for a running back. Mm-hmm. And I believe he already has like 23 this year. Yep, something can, like that. Get, let me, let me check pull, for you. I'll pull it yeah, up for you. I can get that pulled up for you. you no, but, no, uh, he's he's got 15 thus far. But 15? he had, I mean, well, he had six. He 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 tied for the lead on the team uh, with Rock Taylor last game. But he did lead the uh, lead basically all the receivers in uh, in yards receiving. He had yeah. 68. So, yeah, so 15 catches in three games. He'd be on pace for what is that? five a game that he'd be on pace for 60 receptions this year as a running back um so just like i said true dynamic dual threat Uh, he's got four touchdowns on the season over 400 all-purpose yards on only 55 touches so he's just he's everything that memphis needed out of the backfield isn't isn't it but for him and his draft prospects yeah i mean they talk about maybe third to fifth round um whether it was matt miller or mel kyber jr that you were just referring to the problem with him, though, is he's a fifth-year senior, and he's not like the biggest guy in the world. He's not—I mean, he's not small, but five nine, about two hundred pounds. He's a little slighter than than you know guys that uh, come out and are, are thought of uh, thought of as day one or day two prospects. Yeah, but I mean, the thing is, is, is we are seeing a massive transition at the running back position where teams do not just have a single running back anymore. It's hard to look around the league 
and find running backs that are getting 65% plus of snap shares. Like teams want to keep their running backs fresh. And typically that second guy is a smaller slider guy that can catch the ball. So he fits the perfect mold for what a number two running back is in the NFL nowadays. Now, of course, testing, uh, combine testing, and what he does throughout the rest of the year will go a long way to determine uh, what pro scouts really think about him in the long term. But I think he does. I think he perfectly fits the mold of what a number two back is right now. Now, real quick, I want to before we move off of uh, Tiger football and into other college football, I want to give you a chance to give a give a shameless plug on the show for the uh, Players Club presented by Bluff City NIL at Let It Fly Germantown. Uh, let us yeah. know and and who's who's on the docket. What players will be uh, will be there for you? Yeah, so we are doing the Players Club every single Tuesday at seven o'clock at Let It Fly in Germantown for the rest of the season. Started two weeks ago. It'll go throughout the rest of the football season. This week, we have uh, Diego Brumfield, defensive back, Hank Pearson, defensive lineman, Rock Taylor, wide receiver, and, man, I'm blanking on the last one. Uh, I believe uh, uh, Davion Carter is the, is the fourth Carter. one. Yep. Yes, uh, yep. right, right guard. guard Davion he Carter. plays, uh, yeah. again, Gray's, plays a great position. Yep. Right so guard. It's a, it's, a, it's a good group that we have this week. For sure, they were all – impressive in that game rock was really good on offense almost had two touchdowns but did end up scoring in that game uh hank pearson had four tackles and a tackle for loss uh diego brumfield had i think five tackles and a tackle for loss in that game and and obviously i've been damn impressed with diego by the way coming out of campbellsville too i mean that's impressive as hell yeah so definitely if you if you got the time if you want to get some good food and come check it out it's a lot of fun uh you'll be able to talk to these guys, meet them, and uh, hear a little bit about not only this season, but uh, spend a lot of the second segment just talking to them about their stories and where they came from and how they got here, which to me is always the coolest part. And uh, word is it's two for 22 burgers and chicken sandwiches. So It is. There is yep. that. There is that. They're giving out deals. Um, now moving on, talking with Christian Fowler at C. Fowler BCM, uh, senior writer and content creator for Bluff City Media. Um, we talked about it yesterday on the pod, but – Looking around college football, of course the story is going to be Colorado, but one of the stories that that has just been sort of running um, in non-conference play uh, at the very least is the SEC is just not good, man. The SEC has not been good in non-conference play, and really in conference play we saw um, Tennessee, number 11 team in the country, get manhandled by Florida on Saturday, what what do you what do you think the issue is here? Like I we can talk. I, I I think there's a lot of different issues. NIL quarterback play is is taking a step down. You certainly see that at Bama, and we'll probably highlight that in a second. But what's the biggest issue to you? Yeah, I, I, that's exactly where I was going. I think it's a hundred percent no brainer, undoubtedly quarterback play. The SEC does not stack up in quarterback play this year. You look around the conference. The best quarterback in the SEC so far has been Jackson Dart, and he's played well. Shout out to him. Yeah, he's played well, but you wouldn't expect Jackson Dart to be the best quarterback in the SEC when you've got Bama and Georgia and all the hype that was around Joe Milton in the offseason. But that's how it's played out so far. Like it just it hasn't looked good around the conference from from a quarterback play perspective. Joe Milton's been up and down. Uh, Alabama has an absolute mess at the quarterback position. Carson Beck has been serviceable, but hasn't been asked to do very much. Uh, Will Rogers, who you know you would expect to be playing really well, just hasn't looked very good in Kevin Barbe's system. So just overall, the SEC has been very lackluster at quarterback play. And when you go to the flip side of that, and you look at the Pac-12, which is which might be the most loaded quarterback conference we've ever seen in a single year, and that may sound 
They have the best, but, but they also I, have the be- best record against Power Five teams in the non-con. So right, <laughs> right, yeah. It, it may sound hyperbolic, but it, it truly is not. And you can look at, you know, just the top three. You look at Caleb Williams, Shador Sanders, and Michael Penix. They might be the top three Heisman front runners right now. Like that's how that's how good the quarterback play is in the Pac-12. And that's not even talking about uh, Bo Nix and Cameron Ward and some of the other guys that they have in that conference playing quarterback. So the the contrast between the Pac-12 and the SEC and quarterback play is uh, absurdly deep. Yeah, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on with Alabama. They start uh, Tyler Buckner, play Ty Simpson in that game against South Florida. They only win 17-3. Defense was fine. They're good, but South Florida's no good. Um, but that quarterback play was miserable, and I wonder what the hell Nick Saban was doing. Like, I, there's been a couple of thoughts out there. One is that he was just mad at Jalen Milrow trying to prove a point because Jalen Milrow didn't respond well to other guys getting uh, number one reps in practice. Uh, obviously, he is he has already renamed Jalen Milrow the starter after that disaster in Tampa. Uh, but the other thought is that this was, you know, you know, Tommy Reese comes over from Notre Dame and he's a little bit in over his head, and Nick Saban sort of threw him a bone and said, all right, throw your guy in there, and we'll see what happens because it's just South Florida, and we can, we can figure it out from there. I am, I am just I'm confused by the Alabama quarterback experience thus far. It's very clear to me that Jalen Milrow, while he's not perfect and certainly uh, makes a lot of mistakes, he's the best they got. Yeah, well, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to see that Jalen Milrow is the best quarterback they have, and he's not, partic- he's not particularly played well this year. Um, but at the bare minimum, I think he has the the biggest arm out of the three. He has he gives you the best opportunity for making downfield plays, and he also has something that the other two doesn't have, which is mobility. And if the offense is going to struggle, and the offensive line is going to struggle, specifically in pass protection, then you have to some have have to have someone who can evade the pocket and make plays with their legs. And Jalen Milrow can clearly do that at a very high level. Tyler Buckner and uh, Ty Simpson cannot. But at the same time, I mean, if, if they didn't feel comfortable with Milrow or whatever the reasoning was, it was a good game to do it. Uh, clearly, they still struggled. 17-3 over South Florida is not the result that Saban and that staff wanted. But they got out of there, I feel like, knowing for sure that Jalen Milrow should be the guy for the rest of the way, and they still won the game. So no harm, no foul, If unless you're looking at it optically and aesthetically, then it was right. very, very, very ugly. But they got out of there with the win. I think they feel comfortable knowing that Jalen Milrow is the guy going forward, at least for the moment. I'm not going to be surprised if he gets pulled again, though. I mean, just if you show this early in the season that you're willing to move away from a guy, shows you don't have a ton of confidence in him. And if he if he has a bad game, especially in a big game against a, a top tier opponent, it could be this weekend. I mean, he could play terribly against Ole Miss this weekend, and they could pull him again uh, for Buckner or for Ty Simpson. So we'll see. But I just feel like they should roll with Jalen Milrow because he is clearly the best option that they have. Talking with Christian Fowler at C. Fowler BCM on X. Uh, we did get uh, the Daily Memphian obtaining some documents yesterday um, that had to do with uh, University of Memphis President Bill Hardgrave talking to Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark and sort of texting him after the upset that the Tigers pulled over Houston, and he basically said if, if the Tigers were in the Big 12, they'd be a five seed instead of an eight or nine seed. And then there was another uh, text exchange that he had with Linda Livingstone, who is sort of the head of the Big 12's, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
chancellors and presidents group, if you will, that, that oversees athletics for the conference. Um, I, my one takeaway from everything that was sort of revealed yesterday is that the University of Memphis, while ne- nothing has really gone their way in the realignment talks and everything else, uh, but when you couple it with how aggressive they're being in trying to get Simmons Bank Liberty Stadium renovated, it, it, they're being aggressive. Now, is that going to get them what they want? Not necessarily, but they are being very aggressive in, in, in trying to go get their ventures done and, and, and figure out what's best for the future of them from an athletic standpoint. Yeah, I, this is a tough situation and I, I haven't looked around a ton to see what the, uh, to see what the like kind of feeling was from Memphis fans. I haven't seen a ton about it, but I don't know. We, you and I compared it to uh to be in friend zone, right? Yes, it is. And that, and that's still what this feels like. It's still all this continues to kind of pile on what we already thought. Um, with the fact that, you know, your, your president is reaching out to the commissioner of another conference and saying, Hey, do you, you know, do you watch our game? We were playing the number one team in the country. The fan turnout was great. Yada, yada, yada. So I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is this one can go either way on your opinion, and I, I don't know if I did. I think I'm pretty lukewarm on this. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I've seen a lot from a lot of Memphis fans is you know over the years they've tried to push out basketball as the premier um, you know program they have in the athletic department, and I don't think that's untrue. Like I think that you know historically there's historical significance to what the University of Memphis basketball program has accomplished. Now, that being said, I think there's a lot of fans that say you keep trying to push out basketball, you keep trying to sell basketball when basketball doesn't move the needle. And I think that is a fair, very fair criticism to give the higher-ups at the University of Memphis in trying to get into a bigger conference. You can't just keep selling basketball. You have to show value in football and everything else. Yeah, I I agree. And I am very much on record talking about how I feel about the prospects of what football does for um, for the university and for the potential of conference realignment. But at the same time, like you look at it and you say, well, the, the, the city, like that's what they revolve around is basketball. That's what the university revolves around. That's what they put their money into is basketball. So, it, of course, it's like someone having that one talent that they have, and they just constantly want to show you that one talent. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to try to show anything else. They just want to be like, keep looking at this, keep looking at this. But at the end of the day, I think you have to realize that basketball is just not going to sell you into a power five conference. It just, it's not, I know there are some people around the country that are, that are trying to read through the tea leaves and say, well, you see that some of these conferences, they're trying to go basketball heavy. We know where the money's at. It's not even the discrepancy is ridiculous between basketball and football. So it just feels like if you're constantly shoving basketball uh, to these to these uh, commissioners and stuff like that, saying our basketball program is so good, yada yada yada, it's like they're just going to give you a pat on the back and say, "Okay, cool." Yeah, we don't care about uh, that. Yeah, yeah. we agree. Not, we agree. We agree with you, but that doesn't that doesn't help our our. Uh, yeah, it doesn't help you. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It, it, the thing it doesn't help our bottom line. Yes. Your basketball program does not help our bottom line. So pat on the back, good job, but come back when you can when you can uh, bring us some football stuff. And that's that's just it's a man. It sucks. Uh, it, it, it's a sucky situation to be in, but it's just the matter of truth in this is that football is gonna football is what is going to catapult you into it, and 
clearly we have like firsthand proof of them pushing the basketball program, which isn't bad. I'm not saying don't push the basketball program. It's huge here. Yes. But it's not all you can sell. You've got to sell other sports. You've got to sell your football program. Uh, we need uh, we need President Hargrave sending them some, some stuff about football, not yes. just about basketball. Now, last thing for Christian Fowler, at C. Fowler, BCM on X, senior writer and content creator for Bluff City Media. That was a disgusting display of offense on Monday Night Football from all four teams. Saints, Panthers, Browns, Steelers. That made me sick to my stomach last night. And also the other thing that made me sick to my stomach, and I'll I'll let you – speak on this as well but Nick Chubb that was that is so hard to watch that is so yeah. brutal same same knee that he basically tore up completely uh in the same way while he was at uh while he was at Georgia and I I just wonder I wonder what he's going to do if he's going to be able to recover from this that's that's just so tough to watch yeah I'll start there because it's hard if you're an NFL fan not to love Nick Chubb right like he is the, he's the consummate pro He's never given any trouble in the league. Like he is just go to work and be productive. Like that's just what he does. He very rarely does interviews or anything like that. He's just kind of started to open up and come out of his shell. I think he was on the pivot podcast uh, during training camp, which if you haven't seen that, go check it out. It was, it's cool to hear him talk because you just don't hear much from him. Um, But someone who's always just strapped him up and went and played like he's not out there trying to be swaggy. He was talking about that too. Like just, just throw the gloves on and and go, and that's it. He's not. He. They said he looked like the mannequins. Like yeah, right. <laughs> it's true. Uh, um, so I've always been a big fan of Nick Chubb, and like you said, it just it's so unfortunate as a whole. But just to know what he's been through in the past, I think it was October of 2015 against Tennessee when he had one of the most gruesome knee injuries you could ever have, and he was clearly on his way to being a, a superstar at that point, or already was a superstar at that point, came back from that. I think that was like LCL, PCL, MCL, ACL, meniscus. Like that was, it was everything in the knee. And uh, he talked about, you know, how once that happened, he thought he was going to be Marcus Lattimore uh, 2.0. I don't know if yeah. – I, I know you I know South you Carolina, do, for, yep. Yeah, for people that don't, he was at South Carolina. Same thing. I think it was 2011 against Tennessee. He tore everything in his knee, and it basically ruined – it ended his career. Um, so Nick Chubb thought he was going to be in the same boat. Clearly wasn't. Came back the next year. Was incredible. Was drafted in the second round. And has, to me, has been the best running back in football for at least two or three years. And then the same thing. I mean, there's no way he didn't tear almost everything in his oh, knee last night. Everything. They, I mean, I mean they, he, you, they didn't show a replay. They show a replay of almost every injury. I didn't want to see that. And it was all over social media and everything else. That was, I People stop, stop posting it. Please. Yeah, I, I was shocked when Buck and Aikman said we will not be showing a replay of that. It is as bad as it gets. We are not showing a replay of that. That just doesn't happen most of the time. And I don't think it's because they're trying to show it. I think typically they just show the replay so quickly that you end up seeing it. But they knew immediately how bad it was, and they didn't even show the replay. But it was it was gruesome. It was absolutely gruesome. And you see, you see how much people respect him when you look around the league. And just on social media last night, how much love was spread towards Nick Chubb because he is someone that is, uh, I think, very respected around the league. And, and we saw that last night. So super, super unfortunate for him. Now, last quick thing. Uh, Deshaun Watson, is he cooked? Or are you going to give him a few more weeks? Man, I, I don't know. It didn't look good. It didn't look good at all. Uh, he hasn't really looked good. In the, we know he didn't last year, but expectations for some people this year that he was going to look much better he really hasn't through two games. 
But on the flip side of that coin, the offensive line hasn't looked very good either. Correct. So it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, they were and I think Kevin Stefanski is a strange play caller. They rely on the run game a lot, and it's not really allowing Deshaun to drop back and you know throw the ball forty times a game like he did with right. the Texans and Bill O'Brien. Yeah, and I think I think that's a lot of the problem. I think he's just not allowed to be himself. Um, and I know everybody has their opinion about Deshaun Watson. Of We're course. talking about him stri- strictly as a player. Yes. Yes. Uh, strictly as a player, Deshaun Watson was a top five quarterback a couple of years ago before all this stuff went down. Like he's extremely talented. One of the one of the best creators. There's a reason he is. He has two hundred and thirty million dollars guaranteed, guaranteed in his contract. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to allow him to have that creative freedom to scramble around and make plays and everything's not on script for Deshaun Watson, but that, and that's why this marriage between the Browns and Deshaun Watson is so weird because Kevin Stefanski is so buttoned up. And so like everything has to be run to a T to perfection. And that is not who Deshaun right. Watson is. So, so now with Nick Chubb out, yes, you know, they have Jerome Ford who played well last night, but he's obviously not even in the same stratosphere as Nick Chubb. So now I'm very curious to see, like, do they turn the keys of this offense over to Deshaun Watson? And if they do, then I think you know what you have, yeah. at least. I, so I, for me, if you're Kevin Stefanski, just turn it over to Deshaun. Let him do his thing. If he flounders, then, man, that sucks. You get, you're paying him $230 million. I get it. But <laughs> right. at least you know at that point. But if you turn it over to him and he's incredible like he was in Houston – then okay, maybe we can we can now we can mold this offense a little bit more and get away from uh, Stefanski style and morph it kind of into a Deshaun Watson friendly offense that fits him, but also caters uh, to the running game and staying in front of the chains and time of possession. So I think there's a balance that needs to be had. It feels like there's kind of a tug of war between Deshaun and the way that he wants to play and Kevin Stefanski and the way that he wants to call the game. So weird marriage overall but we'll see what happens now that they're they're start running backs out for sure well christian appreciate it man we'll do it again next week and uh have fun tonight have fun tonight yes, at uh let it fly players club yes. shout out yep see y'all next week yes sir but make sure you go check out the players club at let it fly germantown it'll start at about seven o'clock they have specials for you there's there's gonna be four players